Welcome back to another episode of Out of the Wing Podcast. Matt, it's a pleasure to have you back on the show. We're going to catch up. You got to tell me, how's it been, man? It's been, I think it's been a little bit over a year, hasn't it? I was going to say, I think we did this sometime last summer. So yeah, it's been a, a little over a year and I guess things have been good, busy, but good. The world's finally getting to be back open again. So that's been, that's been. Oh, wait, that's the last time we talked was around that time. Oh God. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, it was the COVID stuff. A lot of the COVID stuff that had to be, oh, that had to be a little bit more than a year then. Cause around that time had to be around like, what was your last episode? Like 1,100 something. I'm at like 1,500 now. So that's more than 365 days. So yeah, probably halfway, two years, maybe. Yeah, thereabouts. All right. Well, catch me up. What's been going on in the world? You've been thinking about anything? Well, I have been, I mean, I'm always thinking about things. Um, I continue to do most of the work I've been doing. I'm still at St. Louis University, um, still teaching the same courses I was teaching before. I, the last time we talked, we talked about decision making. Um, still doing a lot of the work that I was doing back then. Um, and then recently, uh, there's been more and more stuff that's come out on this issue of happiness, which is what you and I are going to be talking a little bit more about today. Yeah, we're going to talk about the happiness industry because I'm interested in learning more about it. But I got to ask, are you optimistic about society or pessimistic? I found myself now, probably since the last time we talked, becoming very pessimistic about society. Uh, I go I go back and forth. I mean, there are some things I'm very optimistic about and some things I'm very pessimistic about. Say, in, in general, that probably... Uh, makes it all a wash, but uh, I, I do. In the long run, I I think we have a the the general tendency to learn from the things that we are doing poorly and get better at it. What is oftentimes problematic, especially as we start to make decisions and we live in a, a faster and faster moving environment and society, is that. You know, oftentimes we make a, a whole lot of decisions now before we actually learn whether they're they're good decisions or not. And then uh, it becomes harder sometimes to backpedal and undo some of those things that, that we've screwed up. Yeah, I think it's pushing us more to a point of where we're going to be letting technology make our decisions for us. Um, which I think is dangerous because you need the critical thinking abilities too. Like you got to think for yourself at times, but so many times at this point, people just go, Hey, the device will do it for me. I could just Google it. I'm like, Oh God, that's not good. Yeah. Before we started this, I was working on my next blog post for psych today and uh, it's on the importance of human expertise, even in the era of AI. I mean, it makes it obsolete a little bit now because technically anybody could be a historian as long as they have internet access and a cell phone. <laughs> Well, it doesn't. It doesn't. Uh, the problem you've got is that, you know, it's great when the AI produces accurate stuff, but how do you know if it's accurate? And and that's one of the, the issues that we're running into now is that, you know, for instance, there was a professor down in Texas, I think, who uh, believed that his students had all cheated on their final. So he went in and asked ChatGPT if they had cheated, and ChatGPT told him yes, except ChatGPT is incapable of being able to provide him that information. It's magic 8-ball crap. Uh-huh. And so he failed everybody for cheating, and it created an enormous uh, amount of hoopla. Uh, and then there's uh, another recent issue of a lawyer who used ChatGPT to help him do his legal research except that ChatGPT's case law that it cited for him, none of those cases actually existed. 
So he cited all these cases that were non-existent because the AI essentially made it up. You see what I mean about being pessimistic about society? When you get people to make the choice to make a decision of the easy way or the longer, harder, probably more accurate route, most people are going to choose the easy way. I hate to do that, but I've dived into like the 60s and 70s on my show to study the JFK stuff and a lot of other related material beside it, like the Fred Hampton assassination and all this. And I'm like, all this was exposed. It's in the history books, but nobody cares. It's hard to get people to care about last week. And I was like, that's where like our decision making should come from is like, what can we learn from the past to move on to the future? Even if it's 20 years, 30 years, not in your lifetime type deal. But that just that would be dumb thinking or dumb statements on my part. Yeah, I mean, we we do tend to default to the easiest solution when or the easiest way to, to make a decision when there isn't necessarily a clearly evident set of high stakes that causes us to think more deeply about a particular uh, decision or, or decision choice that we're getting ready to make. Uh, and, and that's the problem with AI, right? People become accustomed to believing that the AI is right all the time, but the AI cannot be right all the time. And therefore, if you if you lack any sort of expertise to be able to even just question whether in this instance, the AI might be producing some faulty information, then you're going to accept what the AI has to say and, and act on it, even if it is faulty. But the AI isn't the one that ends up experiencing or suffering the consequences if it's a bad decision. The person is. And and people would be advised to to keep that in mind, especially when you start talking about fairly high stakes decisions where there's a lot of things on the line. It's not the AI that's going to be punished. It's going to be the person. You find that if you put people in a position where they might feel a lot of pressure or they might be at a low state and they tend to act quickly before they fully go into something like that. And this is going to relate to the happiness thing that we're going to start talking about, hopefully. Um, but it's the fitness industry stuff. Every day I get the same thing. Someone coming in, how do I lose weight? What do I eat? And just trying to find tips and tricks, whether they're new starting to a gym. And if you look at the history of like the fitness industry and look at the history of like what the sugar industry did about saying that fat was bad and not sugar, sugar was actually good for you. There's a reason that people are all confused because you honestly, there's so many different trends and fads and whatever you want. Obviously, it's different per person, but the education on it should be relatively the same when it comes to how people are learning. And you have people in a point of confusion where they think that not eating for six days is a great way to lose weight. It is, um, but it's not not a great way to live. Um, that's a terrible way if you only eat on Sundays. Right. Well, and that's the interesting thing too, right? I mean, the the, the biggest loser. Uh, do you remember that show that's when it good. was on? <laughs> I, I've never seen it. Um, I mean, I know the general premise behind it, but it's like celebrity rehab. It's like that kind of moral decision of like you're just making fun of people for profit. Well, and there was some evidence that you know a lot of the people that were losing a lot of weight were actually doing so in ways that was actually not good for them and so you know there there are appropriate ways to lose weight that are not going to put your health at risk uh and then there are less appropriate ways to try to lose weight and sometimes those things could put your health at risk well it's about the immediate like what can make me feel good right now what can do this and what can do that it has to be right there or it's just it's not worth the time well and with weight loss specifically i mean right people 
if, if there's a pill they could take, that's what they would prefer to do. Um, because it's again, the easiest of all possible solutions to the, the problem or the, the situation that they're trying to change. All right. So let's get on to the happiness industry. We cut the, we cut, we cut the bread a little bit. Let's do the happiness. Industry. What is it? What, why, why is there such a big, well, what is it? First of all, that's what I got to know. What is the happiness industry or what yeah. is happiness? Well, ha- I mean, you could tell me the second one if you want, but I don't think anybody's given me that answer. And I don't know if God's the only one who has it. Well, that's the thing, right? I mean, happiness is this very convoluted idea. Um, I mean, I'll go all the way back to Aristotle and Plato and talk about, you know, different conceptualizations of happiness. And on the one hand, you've got the sort of hedonistic side, right? The, the experience more pleasure than pain you're more likely going to be happy. Uh, on the other hand, you also have the issue of meaningfulness. And and most people who say that their life has meaning tend to report some, uh, tend to report higher levels of, of happiness than people who say that their life lacks meaning. Uh, so the problem is, is that happiness is something that, quite frankly, People will be able to tell you whether they're happy or unhappy or how happy they are. I don't know how accurate they can tell you, but they will be able to tell you. Uh, and then they will also, though, you know, not necessarily be able to, to define it. Well, how do you know you're happy? How do you know you're unhappy? I mean, clearly we know that we're unhappy if there's something that's missing, right? And that's the interesting thing about human the, the way we're wired, human evolution, is that a lot of the experiences that we have are not the result of necessarily seeking happiness per se, but it's that we see things that aren't working, things that we're missing, things that we want, and that creates motivation for us to go out and, and seek to attain that thing that we're currently missing. Happiness is sort of this assumption that we've attained it all. And the problem is, is that there is no way to attain it all. Once you have what you think you want, there's something else that you're going to to, to need or want in the future. And so where you end up with is essentially this ongoing cycle where people are constantly seeking happiness, but never able to find it. So like a moment type thing. I mean, you, can you ever really truly fully be 100% happy all the time, like every single day? Like if you're happy one day, the next day is going to be different. It's not It's not possible. Well, and if you're happy every day, how would you know that you're happy if you're never unhappy? I think you take account of more moments when you're sad than you are when you're happy. You don't think about, oh, I'm happy right now. You're more just in the moment and happy. Because positive things tend to have less weight on us in terms of the things that we remember than than the negative things we tend to have a negativity bias and so you know because the negative things are the things that threaten us so it's really important for us to identify those things to pay attention to those things and to eliminate those things it's not as important for us to necessarily pay that much attention when everything goes according to plan and and is 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 working out you know splendidly isn't happiness i mean what emotion do you think of when you think of happiness joy uh would be one probably. i meant not emotion color color my bad oh color there isn't one 
I've tried to think about it. I was like sitting there. I was like, there's no emote like red is anger. Blue is like sad or gloomy, but there's no color for happiness. That's true. Yellow. I mean, yellow is like, I don't know what yellow is. Yellow be fear or anxiety or something. Anxious or something. Yellow associated with caution. But there's no emotion or there's no color for happy. Well, no. That makes me unhappy. (laughs) Fix it. (laughs) And how do you know when you get there? So Dan Gilbert wrote a, a good book called Stumbling on Happiness. And he said, you know, one of the problems that we have is that our current self, right, can only guess what it is that we want to be happy. But, you know, 10 years from now, my current self is going to to think something else is what's going to make it happy. How I am today, if I start pursuing the things that I think are going to make me happy, even if I acquire all of those things, there's still going to be things that I'm going to want, things that I'm going to think are missing. And so, you know, on the one hand, you could say that that happiness is the sort of preponderance that you've gotten most of the things you've wanted out of life, that things, generally speaking, are working reasonably well, that, um, you know, that you're not really lacking for anything of major substance. And you could define happiness that way. I, I don't know how many people actually do. Uh, instead, I think most people, at least based on my experience, sort of define happiness as this sort of general sense of well-being. And am I a relatively healthy, happy, you know, reasonably well person? And if the answer is yes, then I'm probably going to say that I'm fairly happy. And if the answer is no, then I'm probably going to say that I'm fairly unhappy. How did you get interested in looking at happiness? Like, you know, a lot about it. Do you just read books on the side or? Well, I I study, I mean, I I originally got into psychology studying things like mood, stress, and emotion. So, um, you know, there's uh, happiness ties in very nicely to a lot of that stuff because, you know, when we're in a good mood, for example, we do tend to evaluate things in a more positive way than if we're in a bad mood. And so if you're in a good mood, you're probably more likely to say that you're happier than if for whatever reason you're happening to be in a bad mood that day. Have you under about say have you looked at um burnout or stress related burnout? Like when people get those types of things. I see a lot of that with a lot of kids. I mean, I'm 25. So I see a lot of we're not, you know, older, but we're at that kind of point. Like I was at a concert the other day and a bunch of 17 year old kids were in front of me and I go, Oh my God, I feel like in like an old person. This is crazy. This is nuts. And I just, it just hit me like a flash. Oh, it gets worse. The older you get, I just got to point that out. But a stress-related burnout is a big thing. Like I experienced it doing the show and stuff, but I've noticed it with a lot of my friends that just, it feels like everyone has an anxiety issue now. Like you ask somebody to hang out or something, they just back out. And I've always just wondered what that was, if that was just an inherent part of us, or does it get worse as we get older? Well, burnout's kind of a, it's a construct. So burnout used to be, Okay, the way it was defined is as a very chronic state of being, right? That you're, you know, chronically tired, you're emotionally blunted, 
you feel as though you have this ongoing lack of general accomplishment with the things that you're doing. You have no efficacy, really, right, with your life, with your job, with your relationships, and that those are all signs and symptoms of burnout. Since COVID hit, and probably a little before COVID, some of the ways that the topic has been talked about has really watered down the concept of burnout and made it into this thing where, well, if you're just stressed out, you're probably burned out. Well, no, you're probably not. I mean, stress is, a, is, is generally speaking, it's a good thing. Um, stress is that, that experience that we have that tells us that, you know, things aren't going well, that we're, we're short of resources, that there's these threats out there that we're having difficulty managing, that, you know, there's something going on that is threatening our livelihood, our well-being, or our, our general sense of self. And so you need to be able to effectively respond to that. And if you can't respond to that, or you're constantly inundated with things like that, over time, it does tend to result in some, you know, mental, emotional, and physical, you know, decrements. And that's where burnout really kicks in. But if you're just really tired from, you know, it's been a really rough two weeks. I'm really tired. I mean, I go through this. It's been a really rough two weeks. I'm really tired. What I really need is a weekend to just, you know, uh, unplug and recharge. And then everything's better after that. That wouldn't necessarily be burnout. That would just be some initial fatigue from the result of, of, of operating with too few resources to deal with the demands that I've been experiencing. Over with people who experience real chronic burnout, where you end up with is it isn't something that a weekend, uh, a weekend off is necessarily going to fix. A lot of times it can become very, uh, uh, psychologically ingrained to the point where people need things like, you know, uh, employee assistance programs and counseling and sometimes medication in order to help themselves right the ship. I've noticed it with um, a lot of social media stuff I see in algorithms now is a lot of motivational stuff. I always have friends that post very motivational stuff and all this. I don't necessarily like those or agree with the motivation stuff. I don't really look seek for motivation on social media and stuff like that. But I've looked at some of some of these channels and they grab incredible followings from it of just and I'm like, I guess there has to be a market of people out there that just feel like they need someone to tell them that they need to get up and go get their life or give some type of motivation in that sense. And that sparks up a drive in people. But it's just interesting because I think everyone has a natural curiosity about emotions, whether it's ones that relate to themselves, but also just what, how do they work in general? I learned a lot about boredom, which is from a researcher who was on my show. And he just said, boredom, like nothing, if you're bored in your house one day and you weren't bored yesterday, he goes, nothing changed. It's just the fact that you're now at a state where everything around you just seems meaningless. And he's like, so you can find something that has meaning in it. There's nothing that changed. It was fine for you yesterday. Why is it not fine for you today? And it's just like, when you really start to break down the emotion aspect of things, you really start understanding more and it makes it more simplified and less stressful. Yeah, I mean, emotions serve a functional purpose. Uh, they tell us about the state of our transactions with the world around us. They tell us about, you know, the the state of the environment and the state of ourselves. So when we do something that is uh, 
when we do something that is we consider to be wrong or that hurts somebody else, right? We we oftentimes will experience guilt. On the other hand, if somebody else does something and maybe the exact same thing we did, and you know it's caused then by somebody else, then we experience anger. Uh, and so emotion serves that very functional purpose, and that's the big difference between you know anger and and guilt. Anger is you know, we blame somebody else for something and guilt is we blame ourselves for it. And so there, there are, is a functional side of emotions. And then there's also both the anticipatory side, right? We experience emotions when we're leading into things. And we also experience the, uh, the uh, uh, posterior side, the after effect side, right? So we go through some experience when we're leading into, say, a very anxious experience or threatening experience, we experience that high level of anxiety or worry. And if we get through the experience, we might experience relief or calmness, uh, take a deep exhale. On the other hand, if, if bad stuff happens, we might on the instead experience things like, you know, sadness or depression. So it tells us both one about our relationship to the environment and how the environment is affecting us. But it also tells us too, you know, it prepares us for action and then also helps us to recover from action. You find that like, I mean, this is intertwined with addiction as well too. It seems like a lot of the stuff, like if we talk about feelings and emotions and things that can drive those feelings and emotions, it feels like if you're in a state of bad, then you can look for something that gives you a state of good. Like learning about dopamine and stuff like that. I have ADHD, so I tend to get dopamine rushes from things. Right now, I'm in a huge music fix. It's I'm like hyper-focused into making music. It's just awful because I can't think about anything else but that. But then I know that I look at it, I go, that's addicting for me is the dopamine feeling I'm getting from that. But then I look at like other people who have like either low emotions and they turn to drinking or they turn to something like that. I'm like, there has to be, I mean, that's a quick fix, I guess, but it's not a right fix. It's just that instant, I don't know, feeling of relief or something like that. That's interesting where I'm, I start wondering, is it intertwined with addiction? It can be. Um, I mean, once you get into the actual addiction, though, the addiction itself creates a very physical connection. Um, to whatever it is that you are addicted to. But a lot of people find themselves, not everybody, but a lot of people find themselves into uh, addictive uh, behaviors or into their their particular addiction as a way of either blunting uh, the various stressors or you know negative emotional experiences in their lives, sometimes uh, as a way of, seeking to strive towards more positive things too. So, you know, some people will, you know, they want the rush of something. And amusement so amusement what's parks. that? Go to an amusement yeah, park. They were, yeah. They, yeah. The amusement park rush, if you will, but that can be created by any sort of chemical addiction as well. The problem is, is that over time it takes more and more of it to have the same effect and, and, or you become uh more or less accommodated to that way of being and you know all of a sudden you want to maintain it all the time and again you start taking more and more of it and it, it becomes difficult to to stop taking it if and if not in some cases impossible to stop taking it. so would an example of like something of a happiness industry would that be amusement parks i just thought of that what do you mean 
getting happiness from an amusement park. That's what I'm well, thinking. You can certainly yeah. get something that fulfills you from an amusement park. Uh, I'm not the world's biggest amusement park person, oh. but the people who really, really enjoy the rush of that and, and they like that as a part of their life, absolutely that can be something that can help fulfill them and 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 make them at least hedonistically happy. So what is the problem with the happiness industry? I've noticed that a lot of people have written books on it. Um, I've looked over some of the various works on it, but it's just, it looks very, very complex. I mean, is it just about marketing capitalism and, uh, emotion or something like that? Or is it just, well, I mean, it's, it's part of the problem is, and you can go all the way back to the sixties and, and probably even earlier, but the, the issue you've got is that you've got this entire industry which is probably somewhere between 11 billion and 20 billion dollars uh, a year that uh that essentially tries to tell people or, or remind people that they're not happy and tries to sell them on the secret of being happy like some reverse psychology something like that well if you're constantly being told that your life isn't good enough, that clearly there are things that are missing from your life, and that, you know, you'll never be able to be happy without help, then eventually people start to internalize that. You can see this with a lot of the conversations that happen on social media and in society in general. I mean, people start to internalize some of the things that they're constantly being bombarded with. You're told your life isn't good enough, that you're too fat, that you're too skinny, that you're too this, you're too that. And if people tell you that often enough and you're exposed to that often enough, eventually you'll start to believe it. And how did they like, get Facebook was really bad for this, right? It was the sort of keeping up with the Joneses. People can can sculpt and create these fictitious worlds they live in that seem like they're real to the people that are are taking a look at them or or seeing what they're putting out there and so they they see those worlds fictitious as they may be and they say well that's not my world i want my world to be more like their world and therefore they start to feel as though there's something missing kind of like similar to like influencers a lot of people see po people just posting up pictures on yachts and bikes, and it makes them feel bad because they're not doing those things and they need to do more. But those influencers are probably not doing it like how they're posting about it. I mean, nobody ever posts their bad stuff, though. Like nobody ever posts working at a job to get the money to go to an amusement park. Well, no, we fill in those blanks, though. Right. All we see is the end result. We see what 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 the influencers or what the Joneses want us to see. And now we feel as though we are inferior, that we're missing something, that there is something that we should be doing to help, you know, close that gap between us and whoever it is that we see. And, and that's really how human nature works though, right? So we operate based on the gap between our present state and some desired future state. And we operate as a general rule under the premise that we know what that desired future state is. There are things that happen that tell us where the discrepancies are, and we seek to close those gaps. We know, for example, that, hey, our house is really too small, and, 
And what we really need is a bigger house for the wife and the kids and the dog and the cat. And so therefore, we see this discrepancy between our present state and an ideal future state. And then we are therefore motivated and engaged to try to close that gap. When we see and, and are inundated with all these pictures and, and fake lives that give the impression that there are bigger and bigger discrepancies between what we have and what others have, then it creates a desire for us to close that gap. And that's where people start to internalize the fact that if the discrepancy is as big as it is, therefore I must be unhappy and I need to do something differently. Who would you and say? And there are pl plenty of people out there that will sell you books claiming that they know the secret to happiness. There's a – so would you say like the biggest culprits are the biggest ones that do – I mean it warps the public's perception. It warps people's thoughts. I mean if someone comes across a book and they're fine before they come across the book and go, well, maybe I am unhappy, and they grab it and that's money right there that goes towards it. Would you say it's the motivational people, the influencers? I mean I would start looking at, even at sitcoms. Like how many sitcoms portray a perfect – family and all this type of stuff where i'm like everybody watching that would be pulling something from it well i mean I, I there's a difference between being able to separate you know fantasy from from reality and although we do see that that sometimes people have difficulty discriminating between the two but and those are usually very small cases but a lot of people do sit around and probably think well i wish my life was more like blah 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 and if that becomes a, a, an issue that starts to grow inside you, then it leads to this motivation to start seeking happiness. And as soon as you start seeking happiness for the sake of seeking happiness, you've actually put yourself into a situation where you're almost guaranteed never to find what you're looking for. Damn, that's deep. If you think about it's the same way I... The concept of this started too with uh, some of the work that I do in work-life balance, right? You you talk about people will put out this idea of this work-life balance. There's this perfect balance that exists between, you know, work and and home life and and whatnot. But the reality is is that your life is constantly in flux. There's there's never some perfect thing you're going to achieve because as soon as you cheat achieve it. If you have one great day where everything worked exactly the way you wanted it to, tomorrow it's going to be completely different. I, I agree. doubt that it's sustainable. I agree with you on that because I see that all the time. People post up, I got to have the work-life balance, the happy. I, I'm just like, I don't think that's real. I think you just got good days and bad days. There's not really a controlment of that. Well, and you can exercise some control, right? I mean, even in when we start talking about happiness, you can exercise some control over the ways in which you pursue things, what you pursue, how you pursue them, how you manage your limited you know, time and energy and money uh, in order to try to make progress towards the things that you value. But, and so you can, you can always get better at doing some of those things, identifying things that aren't working and figuring out well, how do I make changes so that they work a little bit better? But the idea that somehow you're going to figure out the magic formula and someday everything's just going to work out is really not realistic. Do you think that it's strange that people are actively seeking out happiness? No, I don't think it's – well, I do um, in the sense that they're 
oftentimes investing a lot of resources into something that's not necessarily going to produce the the benefits they're looking for. But uh, I don't actually think that it's it's weird that people do this because I mean there is an entire industry that propagates this. I mean there was a while it's been a while now, but there was this push in I want to say it was Forbes, but maybe it was something else, arguing that there should that companies should have a chief happiness officer. And to me, that's the most one of the most ludicrous things I've ever heard because your chief happiness officer isn't going to do squat, but but make a big fat paycheck at, at the expense of other people. That's a big fucking badge, I can tell you that much. <laughs> so that wait, so that was Forbes that posted because I'm start I, I, I think to... it was Forbes. It, it might have been Fast Company, but it was one of those two, I'm pretty sure. Because I, I like I said, I, I'm new to the whole happiness industry thing. I've never even heard about it before. Um, I saw your tweet that you tagged me in. And so when I was looking at it, I was like, I mean, it makes sense that there's a business to try and profitize or try and sell happiness because there's a market for it. Obviously, everybody wants to be happy. Nobody wants to be without happiness. I'm just trying to find the ways that they achieve that. How do you achieve happiness from a, a business standpoint? Like what's everyone's marketing tools just to make money, I guess. Well, and that's the thing, right? I mean, I don't, I don't know. So if you've got a company, let's say that has, We'll just take a small one, right? Let's say you've got 20 employees that work for your company. What What's going to make those 20 people happy is going to vary tremendously. Everybody doesn't want exactly the same things to make themselves happy because A, everybody has different things to start with. B, everybody has a different set of values that sort of drive you know, their day-to-day lives and the kinds of things that they feel are important. And therefore, they're going to want to strive for different kinds of things. If if the same things made us all happy, we'd all be exactly the same. Okay. I mean, that makes sense. But how, so I'm getting, is that why there's just, a, there's just a scattered market for happiness stuff then? Like if you're looking at motivational books, you're looking at all these other types of things. That's a, there's a scattered market for it. With one doesn't attract you, another one will though. But it's all the same ploy, and more or less. And 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 the backgrounds of people are very different, right? So motivational speakers, um, oftentimes, are really more focused on things like persistence and you know maintaining your focus on goals and 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 working harder, right? So most motivational speakers, and there's some evidence to suggest that that there is often a boost from a motivational speaker, but that boost tends to be very short-lived. And then people are right back to their sort of baseline level of motivation. So, you know, the motivational speaker is sort of more generic in the sense that how you're trying to motivate people or what you're motivating people for can vary tremendously. Remember the guy in his garage that always says, look at all these books I have next to my three Lambos. You remember that shit? I hated that shit so much. And, but the happiness people are trying to give you oftentimes a recipe for how to specifically pursue happiness. So they're the kinds of things they focus on tend to be a little bit different. They, you know, they tend to, yeah, you'll hear people say that, you know, gratitude, practice gratitude, and you'll be a happier person. Well, the evidence on that is pretty sketchy, to be honest. 
you know, yes, happier people tend to be tend to demonstrate more gratitude than non-happy people. And there is some evidence that if you really, really strive to practice some gratitude, you might be able to inch your way up a wee little bit on the happiness spectrum. But that's about the extent of it. So there, you know, gratitude alone isn't going to uh, make you happy. Uh, getting everything you want isn't going to make you happy. Money isn't necessarily going to make you happy, but there is evidence to suggest that below a certain level of, of financial resources, people tend to be less happy. And above that threshold, you know, if you're really, really poor, it's really hard to be happy. And so more money creates the sort of uh, very steep incline in happiness. Then after a certain point, it kind of levels off a little bit. How much that point is, is debatable. There's been some recent stuff that has been done that, that suggests, and I can't remember the article or the dollar amount. It used to be $80,000, though, you know, you'd have to factor in inflation there these days. Um, and then above that, the increase in happiness was relatively minimal, but it kept going up, but it really plateaued a lot. And more recent stuff suggests that that number might be higher and that it doesn't plateau right away as quickly as we originally thought it did. I can't say that I have the answer to that, but I do know that it is a lot harder to be happy if you don't have any money. Yeah, they say money doesn't buy happiness, but I go, yeah, but it, I don't know what it does, but it buys temporary happiness is what I had called it. Um, brief for that moment, very, very short, but it, you know, you buy a shirt, buy anything like that. It's just spending a little bit of money and getting something new. It changes it up and just adds a bit of that temporary happiness. Well, I mean, money doesn't buy happiness necessarily, but money certainly doesn't hurt. Yeah. Um, it's a lot harder to be happy without money uh, than it is with money. Yeah. A lot also depends on what you do with it. Now, how much money, like, I mean, if you could look at the industry of happiness, I mean, you, you mentioned a lot of money before in the beginning, but is that something like, I mean, the government is aware of that knows about it? The government have a piece in that as well, too? I would feel like that it's very, very, I mean, it's obviously probably going to cause more risk down the road if you look at like people's spending however much money into something. And I'm okay with somebody making a profit if they want to, but is it done with the best intentions is the true question. Well, I mean, the problem is, is that, whether you're talking about the government or or society in general, I mean, not a lot of people necessarily would stop and question this because, well, you know, happiness is a good thing, right? So if it's no different than the the overarching sort of wellness and health and well-being industry to begin with, and the stress industry, the stress management industry, that was my most recent post for Psych Today, um, was about how much bullshit exists in the stress management industry. No way. Come on. They can't deal with any more stress. Don't add it on top. Well, you know, for for as 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 many of these allegedly successful and effective stress management programs that people have developed over the years, we certainly haven't done we haven't done a very good job of making a dent in the amount of stress people experience. Are you telling me it's all bullshit? It's not all bullshit. There's some effective stuff, but a lot of it's bullshit. I got to ask now about the stress management thing. What are we talking about? Like, what are we talking about here? Like uh, just someone like squeezy ball thing, something that's 
Well, so part of the problem is, is that the way a lot of the stress management industry view stress is as all stress is bad stress. When in reality, all stress isn't, isn't bad stress. So what's, what's actually happened over time is, and, and so Hans Selye was the one that originally sort of coined the term stress and the stress response with his uh, general adaptation syndrome, uh, the, the, uh, uh, the alarm, the uh, reaction, the exhaustion that goes along with stress, right? No, alarm resistance exhaustion, I think is what it is. And so, uh, and it was all fine and dandy, but he also, English was a second language for him. And so he used this term stress, but the way he talked about it was, ended up being easily misused and misunderstood and that then sparked before he even had a chance to to offer his two cents on it all of a sudden this stress management industry was created and it was all almost all premised under the idea that stress is bad and stress is to be eliminated and therefore almost everything that we put out or we see put out is talking about you need to decrease stress. You need to decrease stress. You need to decrease stress. When in reality, some stress is very good stress and most stress is functional stress. It's functional until it becomes needlessly chronic. At that point, it starts to have an adverse effect on your health and well-being. But stress, experiencing stress because you don't have enough money this month to pay the bills is not something that should go away. You should feel stressed because you don't have enough money this month to pay the bills. And so the whole stress management industry is largely focused on decreasing stressors and not at all really addressing the issue of it's helpful when people are more resilient. We've made people less resilient over time. We've taken away a lot of the stressors that people used to have Right. I mean, it's hard to claim that the kinds of things that people stressed about or that made people stressed in, say, 1800 are still valid stressors today. Some of them may be, but many of them aren't. So we've eliminated those. And instead, we've just introduced new stressors. But we haven't taught people how to be resilient to those stressors and how to keep those stressors from having any more of an adverse effect on them than they should. Could you give me some examples of some new stressors? Um, well, so a good example is how many children are allowed to fail anymore? Like in school? Yeah. Ooh, probably zero. How many parents swoop in and save the day before their kid can actually navigate the stressors or the demands on their own? The kid starts struggling. Somebody swoops in and fixes the problem. The kid never learns how to fix the problem. So the kid at that point is no longer actually building his or her resilience to those kinds of things in the future. They're going to be looking for someone to fix the problem for them because they don't have any experience doing it. And that's how you end up getting someone that has like a car broken down on the side of the road just standing there. Yep, because they have no idea to how to deal with it. Yeah, that's a problem.
It's interest. It's interesting to me when you look back, like it, when all these industries were first started up, whenever that was. I wonder if that was like I don't know. It, I feel like it has to warp because you look at like my generation. My generation has some things wrong with it. I think every generation has some things wrong with it. Um, but there's like you really look at like industries that are created for a reason, and then they end up growing to be whatever they are now. Do they have a, such an impact that it changes the course of the way that people function? And then we have this whole developed timeline now where you have people that are getting stressed out over really simple stuff. I have friends that get stressed out if they, they call it social anxiety, which I don't think everyone in the world has social anxiety. So it's like defining what that is. But I have friends that get stressed over like really simple stuff. And then some friends that do this mentality of like if a friend stresses them out once, they cut that person out of their life. And I'm like, you can't. That's not how that works, but I get it. You can cut out a friend. That's fine. But over one thing, like a little bit of stress, like people can't handle it at all anymore. It's the smallest things now, which is, um, I learned this through my work. Since I work front desk, you're a single person on staff the whole time. And when we have new employees come in, they'll get a flood of like 50 people or something like that. And then they just start panicking. And I'm like, it's fine. Give it two weeks. That'll stop. But no one ever makes it those two weeks. It's like two times or three times and they're out the door. It's because a lot of these kids have never been put in a position of you know, dealing with something all on their own without anybody guiding them through something, which I'm, I'm in the same boat as well, too. I'm just really good at thinking on my feet. But that's a that's a few, that's going to be a future problem down the road. And it seems like it's going to be a continuous line of kids learning the same exact thing to where we'll have a bunch of adults that are going to not know how to function when something gets dropped in front of them. And some of it is, I mean... It is an acquired skill. Learning to be able to think and adapt on your feet is an acquired skill. There is a reason why, generally speaking, think about folks in the military, right? Um, generally speaking, the folks in, in the military are better capable of, uh, of adapting to significantly unexpected, dangerous situations than say somebody else who's never had any military experience or never been in law enforcement or in any kind of first responder high risk occupation where their life is regularly in jeopardy, you know, you actually have to learn how to adapt and respond effectively in those situations or else bad things are going to happen. And when you, now I'm not suggesting that we stick kids in you know, extremely dangerous situations and say, good luck, kids. But if you start removing all of the things that could possibly cause stress from people's lives, they never learn how to effectively respond to that stress and how to manage themselves so that they can they can address the stressor in a way that is effective and does the least amount of damage on themselves. Kind of like a stress tolerance thing. Like I noticed like the more stressed, I mean, I've always gotten stressed, but my stress, I have no stress basically. I mean, I have stress, but I think everyone does, but I just small things that used to really get me don't get me anymore. It's like really serious stuff that can really stress me out. But a lot of things I'm very even keel. And I think that's because from so many years of stress, 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 stress. I know you're like, oh, you're young. How do you have stress? That's usually the answer I get, but it's like, no, there's real things that are stressful per person, it's just how they're looking at it or how they're viewing it. But I also think it's important to have it in your life. You can't eliminate it because it, some of my best work comes when I'm stressed. Yes. And it comes from the, because stress is more or less, I mean, it's stress is nothing but a higher level of arousal. 
right? So, Dang. I mean, you have to have a certain level of arousal to be motivated to do anything. So stress is just a, a much higher, more elevated level of arousal where it becomes problematic is if that arousal gets too high and it starts to interfere with your ability to think and act in ways that it, when you're not stressed, you would consider to be, you know, uh, appropriate uh, ways of thinking and acting. Sometimes when people experience too much stress, they do things that in the long run are, are self-defeating or have an adverse effect on themselves. Kind of like anger. Anger, yeah. yeah. Anger, uh, frustration, that's where some addiction comes from. They're overstressed. They can't handle it. And so, you know, I'm going to go take a drink and then I take another one and another one and another one. Or every time I get to that point, I start drinking and all of a sudden I'm drinking all the time. Do all these areas when it comes to emotions become a little bit controversial? I have to think that people have varying perspectives on certain things that maybe, I don't know, depending on their experience, probably they would like to eliminate more or have a different view on. Well, that's a good question. Um, there's... Often, okay, there's very little agreement on a lot of stuff because to this point, we don't necessarily know all the inner workings of the human brain. And, you know, we still don't even know what causes consciousness. Apparently, 20, 25 years ago, there was a bet made between a philosopher and a neuroscientist that within 25 years, neuroscience would be able to give us the... Uh, neural underpinnings of consciousness and they still can't and so the philosopher won the bet but uh you know so there's so much we don't know about the human brain and how it works there's a lot of stuff we do know but we don't necessarily know how it all fits together and how it produces the the outcomes that it produces whether we're talking about emotions or cognition or even human behavior do you find that when like with students or with younger generations that you're seeing them be less equipped or less able to tolerate certain emotions, either whether it's happiness and overwhelming amount of happiness, overwhelming amount of sadness, overwhelming amount of anger, overwhelming amount of whatever the board? Yes. Um, it does seem like now I work with most of the students that I teach are you know, working professional students. So we're talking about the average age of our students and the students that I teach tends to be in their mid thirties. Okay. Um, but there's a, a very wide swath of students, but I have noticed over the past decade specifically that there has been an increased number of students who just can't even, just you know, the first time something happens, they're gone like a shot because they have no ability to marshal any resources to overcome what they're experiencing. And in some cases, I mean, these are some big hefty things, but I'm seeing that there's more and more littler things that are creeping up that are causing students to become paralyzed in their coursework. And we see this with traditional age students as well. I mean, you see people talk about the mental health crisis on campus and, and very on college campuses and kids killing themselves and whatnot. And it's because most of them can't, they, they can't cope. They, they, they lack the resources to effectively be able to cope with uh, many of the demands that they experience because they've never been allowed to. 
they've never been able to cultivate those skills. And, and then you're seeing it more in colleges, right? So colleges are trying to create this more insular experience. Well, eventually these kids are going to graduate and they're going to go out into the real world where there isn't this necessarily this insular experience. And then they're going to struggle there. So in some ways, it's just kind of kicking the can down the road. We keep kicking the can down the road. We kick the can down the road with the kids. And then we kick the can down the road with the teenagers. And then we kick the can down the road with the college students. And then we're going to eventually run out of cans to kick or road to kick it down. I think maybe five years ago, 10 years ago, there was always movies I would watch that would have a college kid overwhelmed with books or something. I don't know how to finish this paper. I'm going to have to do this. And there's always that one that was in his room, like with piles of books, yay high, freaking out, hadn't slept in three days and all this type of stuff. And now you get to where the overwhelming is today. And it seems like the majority is now that one college kid from 10 years ago in that film that was locked in their room, freaking out and tearing their hair out, not eating and, you know, not lacking hygiene and all that just over something that the other kids around his time weren't doing that much about. They were worried and concerned, but they weren't just like that. And now it seems like the overwhelming majority today is that college kid freaking out and panicking. I mean, I don't know if the suicide on campuses is a new thing, but there's um, I've seen a couple stories about it, but I've watched it for the past couple of years now go to this mental health crisis on college campuses. The world's in a mental health crisis. I think it got worse after the pandemic as well, too. Um, but I, I see that a lot now. And now I just either see people fed up or I see people that just they don't want any part of it. Like I, when I mean, it's not the same as fed up, fed up's like, I don't care. I'm not gonna let it bother me. But then there's, I don't want any part of it, which is I'm just going to go home and do what I've always done and like what I do because I know it's safe. And it's like staying in this routine over and over again. Yeah. I mean, I don't know that it would be fair to say that it's the overwhelming number of them or majority of them. Um, the percentage of them has certainly increased over the last several years. Uh, COVID probably pay, played a, a role in that. I mean, you think about COVID too. I mean, some of these kids really struggled to adapt. Well, why was that? Because they didn't have the resources to adapt. And, you know, nobody wants to ask the questions, well, why not? Certainly the pandemic was this unexpected thing and it created a lot of problems that should have been far and away outside of what people's normative lives were like, but people's people shouldn't have struggled to the degree that they did. And nobody wants to ask the question as to why they struggled the way they did. And, and now we're being told about the loneliness epidemic. Um, that's the new epidemic. Wait, Everybody's lonely. Everybody wanted to work from home, but when they all work from home, then they get lonely. So we want to let them work from home, but we need them to not be lonely. You're never going to have the answer. It's never going to be once you eliminate this because that's hard, then you go back to it and you go, wait, I missed the other thing. It's like the lobster effect where someone tells you that you're allergic to lobster and then you immediately start craving it. Yep. And, and that's the thing, right? So we just move along from one crisis to another. And, and happiness is always a nice crisis to come back to because happiness ends up being, you know, people are lonely because they're not happy. Or if they're lonely, they can't be happy. If people are, you know, working remotely, they can't be happy. If people don't, you know, have too much technology, they're going to be unhappy. It, you know, you go on and on and on. And a lot of this stuff ties back to happiness. Because that is this thing that then everybody starts to believe that they're missing. 
what about and this is emotion related but what about with politics have you noticed the influx of emotions that leak out with politics it's the craziest thing i had ever seen you can go from happy to sad to angry to whatever in a mix of emotions in a matter of a minute you're talking about the politicians themselves no i i'm that's a different discussion i just meant the whole pull the political talk in general. I mean, I see it with social media feeds, everything, people that would normally, and maybe it's the social media that does it as well too, but I've seen it in person now when it comes to people who talk politics that people seen get in a range of emotions. Well, absolutely. And if you're, and that's the thing, right? If we're constantly being inundated with the outrage industry being another one, everybody's outraged about everything now. Um, cancel culture. Cancel culture. You know, if you're, if you're constantly being told that these things are out there or not that these things are always illegitimate, right. And that these things are all bad. I mean, it, it starts to wear on people after a while and they, they're looking for a solution to a problem that's being forced on them by people with a lot more power and influence. Okay. I, I just, I, I came across an article last week about, did you know they banned the word seaweed? They banned the word what? Seaweed. Why? Environmentalists said it's a racial slur. Why? I have no freaking clue. Apparently, it's the weed part in it has a bad stigma in society that, uh, you know, I don't know, with marijuana and all that, they have it. They linked it in there. It was on. I, you got to look it up if you, when you see it. But there's the environmentalists banned the word seaweed. And I go, there's so many other better things we could be doing. You know, like doing anything for the environment, but you want to change and call the word seaweed a racial slur. And see, that's 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 an issue where somebody's trying to make a bunch of hoopla over largely nothing, and uh, and, and and in some cases, I think it's a matter of people wanting to justify their own existence. I mean, if you give people some expertise in something administrators are, are tremendous like this right as soon as you create an administrative job that administrator is going to be motivated to seek to uh justify the ongoing existence of their position and how do they do that they create more bureaucracy they create more formalized processes that of course all have to go through them they essentially end up creating more work for everybody else because if the administrator's work all goes away because it can be easily done by somebody else and that person's out of a job. So there's a strong degree of incentive for people to continue to make up work. And you see this with a lot of people, positive psychologists or a lot of the happiness people, they will continue to overhype some of the, the results of research, some of which is good research, some of which questionable research, in order to try to continue to justify their own existence. Because if positive psychologists all came out and said, we don't have the secret to happiness, we know that people who are happy or at least moderately happy tend to possess these kinds of things. Good luck. We're, we wish you well. Where's the money in that? There's no money in that. So wait, p positive psychologists are, uh, they're kind of more like getting, just trying to get money. All right. So positive psychology. Well, how much research, first of all, how, how much research is 
good data versus bad data compared to this? Because there's a lot of influence into oh, it's research studies that are influenced by corporations. I've been really interested in learning about. And when I start noticing like the affiliations and you see that this person was funded by this corporation that they're doing a study on, and I'm like, I don't expect your results to be good. You know, that's a big problem. Yeah. I mean, part of the problem is, is that a lot of, uh, whether we're talking uh, psychologists, positive psychologists or otherwise, right. You know, there's a lot of money to be made in best-selling books and the speaking tour and the consulting tour. And so, you know, there is for them even an incentive to uh, go beyond what the evidence actually says on something. What about, I got to ask, what about Reiki energy healing? Come on. Um, what about it? Do you think it's good or bad? That's, oh, that's got to be one of those happy industry things. It is. It's, okay. it's, 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 it's bullshit. <laughs> Thank you. That's all right. I just wanted to make sure. I wasn't I sure if that's where you were going or not, yeah. but it's bullshit. I just want to get your thoughts on that one. hundred percent. Yeah, I think it is too. And I've noticed it a lot and I think it's gotten even worse too, because the number of how it's become trendy or it's become more popularized. And now everyone asks what your astrological sign is. And it'll tell you what the person's personality is, if they can cope with you or not. I'm like, Jesus Christ, we're never going to, they put that on Tinder as your, um, that's, that's the I mean, apparent, astrology yeah. apps, astrology apps make a crap ton of money. It's not BS though. Corporate psychics are a multi-billion dollar industry. <laughs> Wait, like corporations bringing in their own psychic to. Yeah. They'll bring in a psychic to, you know, help coach the executive team and get in touch with their inner, I don't know what the hell it is, their inner ghost or their inner deceased loved one or whatever. Um, and, 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 and they'll claim to have all of these divine secrets that are going to be used to guide the CEO towards making better decisions. You believe that some of those people really think that though, like they have themselves convinced. Some of them do. Uh, I mean, people can talk themselves into a lot of things. Yeah. Right. And with, especially with enough, with enough external reinforcement, uh, it, it can be relatively easy to convince yourself of something that everybody else around you clearly knows is bullshit. Um, but do I think that most of them believe that they're psychic? I, I can't say, right. I, I'm, I honestly don't know. There's no evidence for me to conclude one way or another, whether they believe in their psychic powers or not. Uh, my question for them would be if, if you have such great and wonderful psychic powers, how come you're having to do this for a living? Damn. Good Why don't question. you out with a damn lottery? Yeah, that's a damn good question. They don't have an answer to, I bet. Yeah. I think come up with an answer. Things like, well, you know, my powers only work this way, or I'm only able to do this. Um, and and I, I suppose that's a legitimate answer to a certain extent, but um, but it but it does have to it does make you wonder if all these people are such great psychics, how come they're not all extraordinarily wealthy? Are you surprised by the number of industries that are out there when it comes to these billion, I mean, billions of dollars, however much money they're making that are just capturing on these people's, I guess, vulnerable spots or just 
I mean, you can say easy pickings. I know so many people that would just give me the answer like, oh, that's their dumb fault for buying into that mumbo jumbo. And I'm like, yeah, but that mumbo jumbo to you, there's another thing out there. One thing about yourself that you'd be like, it's not mumbo jumbo. It's real hundred percent. Even when I see people spend thousands of dollars on car parts constantly to me, that's mumbo jumbo. I mean, but it's an industry, it's a car industry. So it's just a different horse, but it's so much where business and profits. And I just think it gets very, very complicated. It is. No, think about it this way, right? So the question is, what are you wanting to get out of something? Right. So if I decide I want to go buy a really expensive shirt. Um, How much are we talking maybe, here? What's that? How much are we talking here? Well, let's say it's a $200 shirt. God damn, me, that, a, <laughs> that better be an ACDC signed one right there. <laughs> so I have to come up with a justification for allocating those financial resources towards that. Just because I want it isn't a necessarily a good enough excuse. I also have to have hopefully the money available to be able to do that. I wouldn't consider. And then you also have to be able to say that the cost that you're going to incur is worth the benefit that you're going to get out of it. And so you could say, well, you know, that's a shirt made out of some sort of I don't know, various material that's super silky and it's the softest shirt I've ever owned. And it is definitely worth the cost. Called satin. $200 to go buy this shirt. It's called satin. Well, I wouldn't spend $200 for a satin shirt either. <laughs> uh, but uh, let's use your example. A $200 signed ACDC concert shirt. Um you know, somebody might say that's absolutely worth spending $200 on. And and and, and for a shirt that you're never going to wear. I'm at least going to wear this satin shirt that I'm going to spend $200 on. You're going to buy your shirt and you're not ever going to wear it. Um, so it would be very easy for me to say your choice is ludicrous. And it'd be very easy for you to say my choice is ludicrous. And and that's all fine and dandy, but ultimately it, when it comes to a purchase like that, right, it's, it's an emotional decision. We want it because we want it, not because it serves any sort of real functional purpose. I don't need a $200 shirt. Um, you don't need an ACDC concert shirt. You really want one, but you don't need one. I don't need a $200 satin shirt. When companies go to make decisions about spending dollars on things like happiness consultants and uh, wellness consultants and psychics and whatnot, you know, there has to be a functional reason. It isn't necessarily just because they want to. Most companies don't want to spend money uh, or any more money than they have to. And so... Why are they choosing to do this? They're choosing to do this because they honestly believe or have concluded that these things offer a reasonable chance of doing something positive for the company. And the question is, what is the actual likelihood that these things that these companies are uh, investing money in are really going to produce the benefits these companies believe they're going to produce? And the answer is, generally speaking, they're not very high. 
I would ask uh, when it comes to like marketing and advertising industry being hooked into with some of these happiness and all these other industries that kind of use these, you know, I wouldn't say Ponzi schemes, but kind of like Ponzi schemes. Um, I mean, that relationship there, I mean, who's more at fault? I mean, a lot of these people just, the, it's not necessarily what the person is feeling or experiencing like, oh, maybe I do need happiness, but it could also just be a fact of like how they're pitched it. I mean, some of the stuff that they advertise on there, I'm like, fuck, I need that. And I'm like, I don't need that though. I don't, I don't know what they're doing in the commercial, but it's damn good at whatever they're doing. Well, absolutely. I mean, a lot of these, these people are selling companies on alleged uh, or, or expected benefits. They just don't, these benefits don't generally tend to materialize. Like Fiji oh, water have... and then Dasani water. It's all the same right. shit. Mm-hmm. Or volcano water with ash. You remember that one? That was a it was the water was black and you drink it. And then even like um murder your thirst, the uh the the death drinks. You know what I'm talking about? The yeah, the the you drink it's just water though, but it's like a can thing. Like since it's in a can, you just don't it makes it easier to drink for some reason. Right. And so uh, you know, and so if you're sold on something, and there has to be a reason why. I mean, maybe you already believe in psychics, right? I mean, if you believe in psychics, then it becomes easy for somebody to come and sell you on the benefits of a psychic consulting to help grow your business. Okay. The damn but long if you business don't card. In psychics or you're neutral on it and somebody claims to have these particular powers, they have to be able to provide you some evidence to get you to conclude that this is an investment worth making. And so now that most of the time the evidence is cherry picked. Um, it certainly isn't, hey, we've done a systematic review of our, you know, uh, consulting process and here are the outcomes that it produces and in these situations. And sometimes you're better off to go with this other consultant instead. You're not going to hear that from a consultant because they're trying to make money. I mean, that's one of their chief goals. And, and again, they may say, well, our goal is to really help people. But you're not giving away your your help for nothing. So at least a competing goal, in addition to helping people, is that you want to make money, or and you need to make money in order to stay in business. So the idea that only the helping people is the driving force would be, generally speaking, not actually honest. Well, Matt, I know we covered the range here, man, and I appreciate that. Um, I didn't know you were interested in emotions. That's a that's an interesting thing. Um, yeah, I, I do more of the functional side than I do the uh, physiological side. Um, I spent a lot of time studying the functional side of emotions and especially as a concern, self-regulation. Because a lot of human functioning is really all about how we self-regulate. Yeah, people don't have, I guess people lost that ability. I mean, I'm at fault. I think I lost that ability as well too, self-regulation. Certain things, there's a lot of things that I think um, mass confusion, but I also think it's a buildup of a lot of things as well, too. Just, there's too much coming at people 24-7. I blame like taking the break off of the social media like I post once a day. Best thing I've ever could have done in my entire life. Well, and yeah, although, you know, you're, you are self-regulating, right? Whether, you, whether you're doing it as effectively as you can, we're hardwired to self-regulate we don't necessarily self-regulate effectively all the time. Sometimes we need a little bit of help. 
But no matter how well you self-regulate, you're never going to find happiness. Matt, where can people find your links, man? Uh, you can find me on uh, Twitter, for example, search for at Doc Gravich. Uh, you can also do a people search for my last name on St. Louis University's website. Uh, and then you can also do a search for me on Psych Today. You can see the things that I write on various topics, stress, work-life balance, and decision-making. And AI, to... apparently, I mean, uh, AI consumes a lot of my Psychology Today writings now. Damn. But wait, AI, AI like the, the artificial intelligence of the website? Yeah. What's that? The artificial intelligence of the website. Oh, writing about artificial intelligence and its impact on human decision-making consumes a lot of my time. Okay. All right. The way that it, I guess your thing clipped or said something else, it said AI uses a lot of your work. I was like, oh, I was like, wait, so AI is looking to you as a reference point so you can tell when someone's stealing your shit. <laughs> That's how they know you're right. Um, but Matt, I'm going to link all your li links in the description, man. It's been a pleasure chatting with you again. And thanks everybody for listening to this episode of Out of the Blank. Stay tuned for next